0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of June 13th, 2022. On this week's show, The New Yorker's Vincent Cunningham will be back. He'll be with us to check in on the NBA Finals, where Steph Curry is doing some pretty amazing things. We'll also review the new movie, Hustle, starring Adam Sandler and a bunch of dudes from the NBA. And finally, ESPN's Kevin Van Valkenburg will join to talk about the opening weekend of Live Golf, aka the new pro tour that has a bunch of top pros taking Saudi Arabia's money. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Stefan Fatsis is off this week, but with me from the Bay is longtime Warriors fan. He's actually wearing an Adonnell Foil jersey right now. It's Slate staff writer and the host of two seasons of Slow Burn, Joel Anderson. What's up, Joel?
1: Man, I would, the only Warriors jersey I would ever wear is the We Believe uh, Baron Davis jersey. That's the only... Warriors jersey I would ever wear, uh, Josh. Don't flatter <laughs> to the people like that.
0: Um, why Barron and not Steven Jackson or one of the other dudes?
1: Well, I mean, he was the one who most thoroughly humiliated the Dallas Mavericks. And as much as <laughs> I hate the Golden State Warriors, I don't hate anything like I hate Dallas. So... <laughs>
0: Um, all right, well, we'll get to Marcus Smart in a minute. Um, but uh, as I as I alluded to, back with us, and we're so glad to see and hear him. It's New Yorker staff writer and theater critic, Vincent Cunningham. Um, I was going to make a joke about how you were also wearing an Donald Foyle jersey, but now that Joel has ruined that by noting that he would never wear that. Well, first, hello, Vincent.
2: Hello. Uh, I'll make it through eBay and see what I can do on the foil for you.
0: It'll take a little while, though um favorite warrior of all time pre uh Steph Clay and Draymond edition who do you have
2: oh gosh
0: uh
2: whoo is it is it too cheeky to say Chris Webber I love that guy I love oh, I love I love the warrior. I love Warriors Weber
1: that's nice that's a good one I'm really impressed yeah man that's a tough one that's a, that, that, that yeah. rookie year man yeah dude he was so good yeah I love Chris Webber Chris Webber was one of my favorite basketball players of all time that's Just, a tough one yeah all mm. around, yeah, yeah.
0: I feel like given our give it up for Weber. I, I feel like given our demographic, there should be more said about Run TMC in this pre pre NBA final segment. But we can we can
1: move on. Even though he's made amends, it's kind of tough to come out and say Tim Hardaway is your favorite uh, Warriors <laughs> player. Even still, right now, you know, you would not want to rock the
0: jersey. <laughs> I understand, but at the time, yeah, it was yeah, special. Yeah. It was fun. All right, the NBA did not consult with me when it made the schedule for this year's NBA Finals. They usually do, but this year um, they did not. And everyone loves a Sunday night game. You can watch it with the family. You can have everyone gather around in the family podcast studio to discuss the game and then have the conversation be distributed <laughs> on Monday night. But I guess the NBA just doesn't care about families because Game 5 is on Monday night, so we're left having to talk about the first four games, uh, but particularly Game 4, Um, Joel... We saw Steph Curry overcome a bunch of obstacles, uh, maybe teammates that are not on the level that they've been in the past. Warriors finals runs, got an injured foot. He also had to deal with you telling him that he's not as good as he was in 2016. Um, and yet he scored 43 points and <laughs> leading the Warriors to a 107-97 win, tied up the finals against the Celtics 2-2. to Uh, And so, yeah, just curious what you have to say about all that.
1: Well, I'm thinking empirically, I'm correct that he's not as good as he was in 2016. There's nothing wrong with that. That doesn't have to be offensive. I mean, he was a super. Most of
0: us aren't as good as we were in 2016.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, we've all gotten a little older, right? I think the thing about that. So, I think back to the 20. Would have been the 2015 NBA Finals when LeBron was without Kevin Love and without Kyrie Irving for about 40 minutes of that Finals, and they talked about. The level of difficulty, like physically, how difficult it was for LeBron to play as many minutes as he did and to take on the load that he did. And it was such an impressive effort. He averaged like 36-13-9 and nine, that Andre Ugudala won finals MVP for merely limiting him to that, right? And that's what I thought of when I saw Steph in game four. I was like, this is about as high a degree of difficulty as you will see in an NBA game. That... You're playing against the best defense in the league this year and one of the best of all time on their home floor. They've got all the momentum. You're supposedly hurt. None of your supporting cast, like the the two guys that have been with you the whole time, Klay Thompson has not been playing well. Draymond is almost unplayable. And for you to do that in that moment, man, I mean, it's just not hard to just call that championship shit. Um, And I don't think it really affects the way I look at Steph at all. Like, I still thought that he was great before that game. I think he'll be great after that game. Like, it doesn't affect where I place him in the pantheon of NBA players. But just for a moment, like, if you just focus on what he did in Boston on that night, it was unbelievable. Um And it just was a reminder that it's really difficult to know the sort of stuff that fuels these guys and like what, you know, why they have a moment on this night, and not this night. But whatever it was that was fueling Steph Curry on that night, man, um, it's just, I mean, you, you, you'd you be hard pressed to see any other NBA player in NBA history play as well under those circumstances as you did. And I mean, I think we'll all probably remember that performance for the rest of our lives um, as NBA fans.
2: Yeah, I mean, to your point about the difficulty of this performance, I think part of what fueled him is just sheer necessity when you saw in that, that first quarter how many shots he put up in the first quarter he wasn't really hitting that much he was kind of I mean he, I think he ended that quarter with 10 points but he it wasn't like it was a, a lights out shooting performance from the beginning but he just knew that I think he looked at those first three games and just realized that there was nothing else that he could really depend on for for offense I mean there was Pool, who I love has been sort of spotty as you mentioned about Draymond and, and Clay. you know I totally agree I think it was like a, a mid um, 2010s LeBron performance but crossed with a mid-aughts Kobe performance almost like I'm just gonna shoot and we're just gonna see how it all plays out and by the second quarter you could tell that it was all working in the way that we know it works for him now the defense is stretched out toward him and he's getting into the to the lane it was it was incredible and um, so much of I think the way we've learned to think about Steph is that like there's the visible part of his greatness all the three-pointers, all the sort of the carnival act. But then there's a the thing that we always sort of, you know, the, the invisible thing of, oh, but he stretches the floor and you don't understand what he does for other people. Here was a performance where everything that's great about him was p- totally visible. Everybody, even, you've never watched basketball again, you'd be like, what is this guy doing? It was, um, I, I think it was wonderful just as a sort of testament to just how dominant, we talk about dominance in terms of like Shaquille O'Neal, but like this guy is dominant in his way. And on that night, it was just so apparent.
0: Yeah. That's going to be the thing that he changed about basketball among many things that he changed about basketball, because, um, like (laughs) I, I don't want this to be misinterpreted, but the thing about LeBron, um, there's so much talk about how singular he is and there's so much truth to that. But like, if you look at what Luca did in the playoffs and his ability to put up points, rebounds, and assists to control the floor to have an incredibly high usage rate to drive to the basket to shoot threes. It's, like, not that dissimilar from what LeBron does. I'm not saying that Luca is better than LeBron, but, I mean, when you also look at what Giannis did in the playoffs last year, like, that was a very traditionally dominant performance, and that understates it. Like, again, we haven't seen anybody precisely, like, Giannis, but um, again, his ability to kind of like take the ball to the basket—we've we, seen that player type before—the the the, t- the type that cannot be stopped in that way. And Steph, as a player type, the ways in which he was able to get open and get those shots and shoot off the dribble and on pull-ups from thirty feet—I mean, we've seen it for his whole career. But I—but you're right, Joel. Like. Um, there was kind of a, a thing that crystallized in Game 4 when really all that the Warriors were able to do for him, and this is not nothing, is like set really good screens. Like Looney set good screens, Draymond set good <laughs> screens, and like, you know, Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson were like, Al Horford, you got to get up on him. But like, you know, the Warriors, their whole team and offense is designed to get him those shots, and they've become expert. At doing it and like they, you know, eight y- plus years that they've had in playing together. But like, that's the thing, though. They have like this historically great offense. And then when you look at the numbers, even at the height of their powers, when Steph was off the court, they've been pedestrian offensively. It's all designed to have him do the things that he did in game four. And he did them um, incredibly well.
1: Yeah and is isn't this the stuff we always wanted to see. This is the sort of thing that prevented him from being the Finals MVP in 2015 that so I mean it's tough to call somebody who only shot 26 shots um in game 4 a volume shooter. But we always wanted to see the stuff okay, what would stuff be like if he had a little less help? If he didn't have Prime Clay, if he didn't have KD, um if he didn't play in that offense. You know, could he do this the thing that MJ and Bron and Kobe uh to a lesser extent, cause Kobe did it like wildly inefficiently, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to take a broad side of Kobe, but you know, I'm sorry. You know, that's, it, it, the numbers are what they are, but this is the thing that we always wanted to see about stuff. Like, could he do it under duress like that? Like sort, not on his own, but sort of on his own um, as the primary offensive weapon and not a real, you know, dependable number two. Um, And yeah, like he did it. Like he, he he came through when they needed it the most now the thing that you might say is that well uh does he have anything left um I mean that's a guy who's you know conditioning and the way that he runs around the the court and floor like you know every it's it's really sort of tough to say oh that guy gets tired or that he's not going to be able to hold up over the long haul but it's just like the thing that separates those guys that I mentioned at first is that they did it night after night after night. And the offense and their teams depended on them, not just on offense, on defense too, right? And so Steph is not necessarily needed like that on defense or that they don't use him in quite that way. He's not that kind of a defender. But so that's the thing I'm I'm looking for in, in game five. Like, will he be able to put that together again against that defense? Because I mean, it's, As magnificent as he was, it just doesn't seem like a sustainable sort of performance, right? Like if you're hoping for him to do that over and over again, it just seems like that's sort of a fool's errand, right?
2: Well, speaking of the sort of no Sunday night game thing, I think is almost exclusively to the Warriors benefit that we get with the one exception of between game three and game four. We get two days between games. I think that helps the relatively less athletic Warriors more than it does the Celtics. Um, I mean, it makes me feel incredibly old that we're talking about the Warriors as the old team because I feel like they were the young team two seconds ago. But, uh, that's, you know, I guess such <laughs> is the circle of NBA life. But all of a sudden I, I'm like so happy that whatever is going on with Steph's foot, I, I detected no mobility issues or whatever. But I'm, I, you know, to the extent that they need him to do that again, I'm glad that it's Monday, not Sunday. But I don't know. The other thing helping him is how wildly inconsistent. Uh, his opponents are i mean you could you could do a whole other segment about how the boston celtics are are terrible uh, just- they're terrible they're, they're, i mean they're, they're, they're,
1: i mean seriously they're, they're, the, they're the best terrible team in the history of the nba right but- yeah
0: say more about that Joel. Well,
1: I, I mean they're not of a great of a shooting team they don't have like what you think of as a distributor right a guy that gets people that can initiate offense and get other people easier shots and they're always turning the fucking ball over i don't know if it's a matter of they lack the ability to actually protect the ball or if they are so careless, which doesn't make a lot of sense given the stakes. Right. But I'm just, every time Jason Tatum or Marcus Smart is like lunging into the lane and the and the ball skitters out of their hands, I'm like, what, (laughs) I I mean, we should be beyond that now. Right. Like why, why, why is this still an issue? Why does this continually a thing that keeps coming up? How the the Warriors able to keep thriving off of that. Um, and so I just like I've never seen a team that's as accomplished, thought to be as good, and still be that bad on offense. It's like I guess maybe it's like if the Timberwolves had made it to the finals, right? I just remember when the Timberwolves <laughs> played in the playoffs. I was I was so frustrated with them because they were so talented, but they would do the dumbest things. And that's the way the Celtics play, except they're like the '04 Pistons on defense. No, I mean they're they're not bad
0: on offense. They just have these moments where. I guess the thing that's frustrating about them, if you unless you're happy when they lose, uh, as you might be, the, the thing that's frustrating that's is that um, they hit these kind of levels of transcendence on offense. And it seems like the only chance that the Warriors have is for the Celtics to immolate in the way that they so often do. I mean, Jalen Brown in this series for um long stretches has been just unbelievable like um, amazingly so good good I, I do not have the numbers in front of me but there again there are stretches where his three-pointer is just like is not is, is not going to miss which is not a, a thing that you normally associate with them and then you can't keep him out of the lane either and then when it's just not happening you're like what is going
1: josh there's one first team all nba guy in this series right it's jason tatum and you talking about, we're talking about Jalen Brown. We're talking about stuff who's like 34 years old. Um, and that's the thing that's sort of frustrating about the Celtics. like, where in the hell is Jason Tatum? Like, why is he playing like this? You know, what I mean, it, it can't well, just be yeah. Andrew Wiggins. It can't just like it, if you're that good, if you are that guy, it can't be Andrew Wiggins, right?
2: I have a timeshare on Jalen Brown's ceiling is higher than Jason Tatum's ceiling island. Um, mm. and I, I finally am seeing my, my property, uh, value going up a little bit and and i just think that there are some series in which like tatum has more responsibilities in terms of playmaking he has more sort of point of attack responsibilities which makes his job a little harder in this series but i do think that in order for the Celtics to win they have to also realize paradoxically their 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 offense got better at the moment that they like sort of cemented on like jason tatum is our primary offensive threat he is going to start everything for us but it might be that to win this series they have to like realize this is a a jalen brown series and i think that's part of it i think like they're sort of they still are going through some identity issues that 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 kind of makes it hard for them because jason tatum isn't like a blue chipper yes he is you know the first team all-nba guy but i think that both he and jalen are on that like sort of in the Mm -hmm. next either the second tier or the third tier down from there. And so it really does have to be a kind of a negotiation every time. And I think that's one of their offensive awkwardnesses is that, like, there's a lot of good things happening there, but unlike many NBA teams, there's not the clear best every night is going to be this person. And so every game they have to be smart enough to decide what what is being given to us and what can we then, you know, and Jason Tatum's not a guy like – that. he's not fluid like that. He's more kind of let me get to my spot. Mm-hmm. He's not necessarily the person that I associate with feeling the game out and then making that adjustment. So it's I think that's one of the,
0: the – well, so, so one of the NBA's leading pundits had this to say about him. I think he's handling it all extremely well, talking about Tatum. He's taking what the defense gives him, and that's what great players do. I think he's doing a good job. Draymond Green on his podcast. Uh, <laughs> 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 well, yeah,
2: talking talking about what the defense... <laughs> me, yeah,
0: meaning me,
2: <laughs> what I'm giving him, meaning my team.
0: The world this sort dream, of turns it on itself a little bit on, in Draymond podcast land. Maybe he's just uh, happy that some there's somebody taking a little bit of attention on, off of what uh, kind of series that he's having. But, uh, you know, I think what is going on with Tatum is... Uh, that basketball is hard. And if you, if we were having this conversation during some of the finals that Steph had early in his career, we'd be like, that guy, uh, you know, is not doing super so Steph well. Steph
1: never shot 34%. He never shot 34%, though, from the field. Like, that's just, I mean, that's, Joel, there were so many conversations
0: about why Steph Curry couldn't do it in the finals for so many years. I mean, the this kind of appreciation. For him that's happening now. I don't recall hearing it uh for for very many years in the beginning of his career. And I think um I, I think with Tatum, one thing that I've noticed, and noticed this with Luca a little bit too, is that his game is a little bit ref dependent. There mm-hmm. are certain games where he's shooting where he shot 20 free throws. And he gets at least visibly frustrated when he drives in and doesn't get calls. And it seems to me, as somebody who is kind of annoyed by players who try to actually draw fouls, whether it's somebody who does right. it in the Chris Paul way or somebody who does it in the Tatum way, I kind of feel like maybe he needs to get past get past that. Um, and not in like a you-got-to-toughen-up sort of way, But in A, you need to figure out how to score and lead your team efficiently on nights or in games when the calls aren't going your way.
1: And Vincent kind of touched on this, that he doesn't seem like that instinctive of a player, which is a funny thing to say about a guy is obviously great as Jason Tatum is. But, you know, I guess maybe it's just... um, this homage to Kobe, you know that he, you know, a volume okay. shooter trying to get into the lane, taking very difficult long two point shots, as opposed to you know being able to sort of feel his way through the game in a, in a way like Steph does. Like he just does not. Jason Tatum does not take easy shots. Like, I it, 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 um, and I feel like it's been like that even since he was back at Duke. That that was always the knock on him. That he was willing to take you know the twenty foot two pointer. <laughs> um as opposed to like figuring out a way to get to the lane get into the lane or you know have a, a reliable three point shot or whatever but it's easy to forget that the warriors are the second best defense of the league too right that like they can make you do things that you don't want to do um and so maybe Jason Tatum is doing that but i would just say that in maybe somebody will pull the data on this and i, I can't remember a player allegedly of his ilk a guy with that sort of pedigree first team all nba to play this poorly in an NBA finals for this long, right? I just can't I, I just don't remember it. Like usually those guys elevate. Like they may not meet they may not hit their averages um in quite the same way, but they usually don't play that long because Josh, you mentioned what people said this about Steph. Well, even when Steph was doing all that, and that narrative was dumb in the first place, but Steph was still twenty five, five, and five, right? Like he was still efficient, still, <laughs> Joel, you Joel, know,
0: in the last hmm. three games, Tatum has scored 28, 26, and 23, 6, 6, and 11 rebounds, and 3, 9, and 6 assists. I mean, he's putting up numbers just not efficiently. And he's shooting 34% from the field. I mean, like. I, yeah, but you were saying Steph was still putting up 25, 5, and 5. I mean, it looks like. Uh, Tatum is matching or exceeding those numbers.
1: He won, and he was sharing with with his teammates. Right? Like, I mean,
0: I'm not. So, what do we think? Forty five, forty five for Jason Tatum in Game Five? Are you trying to say that Jason Tatum
1: is playing better than Steph did in the finals? Is that? Is I'm that too old to, remem-
0: to remember to remember that those finals. Joel. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not as sharp okay. as I used to be in 2016. But like again, I blame the NBA for setting the schedule. Jason Tatum going to go out tonight, put up at least forty five. And just you know, make you look bad. And I don't appreciate I don't appreciate
1: that about him. I would love for Jason Tatum to, to do that and to make the people around me in the Bay Area sad. That would be great. But All right, come uh, on. I'm not counting. Come on, on,
0: Jason. Come on, Jason. Up next, the new Adam Sandler movie, Hustle, featuring your favorite NBA players. Terms apply.
1: Adam Sandler's love of basketball has become the stuff of legend over the years. Maybe you've seen one of the many, many video clips of Sandler playing pickup hoops with anyone, anywhere. The producer of Uncut Gems, Sebastian Bear McLeod, told The Ringer in 2019 that there hasn't been a day where, no matter if we're 3,000 miles away, he's not like, do you want to hoop today? I'm playing hoop in a half an hour. Come meet me. Sandler's love for basketball is the fuel for Hustle, Netflix's latest sports drama release. There's a lot of Hollywood and NBA muscle behind this sweet movie, from Sandler himself to LeBron James's production company, Spring Hill. In Hustle, Sandler plays Stanley Sugarman, a longtime scout for the Philadelphia 76ers, who stumbles on a streetball hustler in Spain, Bo Cruz, played by NBA veteran Juancho Hernan Gomez. Here's a clip. You come to Philly. Your whole world's gonna change overnight. I gotta work. My mom and my daughter—they mean everything to me. Salary's nine hundred thousand
3: dollars. He woke in sick.
1: <laughs> Bo indeed leaves Spain with Stanley to pursue his hoop dreams in America. We're not going to spoil the end for you here in this introduction, but I can say that Bo matched up surprisingly well with Tobias Harris. So, Vincent, I enjoyed this movie very much. Am I wrong?
2: How could you possibly be wrong about this perfect movie? In what world could you <laughs> be wrong about a guy named, as you just said, Stanley Sugarman, going to Spain, picking up Juancho Hernan Gomez, who, by the way, great actor. Can he? He can act. He's got the kid's got heart. And then, I mean, every moment, the moment, the the part where he finds him, there's this like huge stadium. They got like late night the, this the big outdoor sort of uh park it's like a sort of spanish rucker lights everywhere <laughs> people st- up on these weird rafter structures that are i don't see what the their use would be in everyday life just i mean it's it's one of the great sort of discovery scenes we get sandler as this like sort of vaguely disgruntled down on his luck but a a real sort of gambler of a personality by the way speaking of gambling this movie is obviously set in the Uncut Gems extended universe. Very very similar uh, texture, very similar personality for the Sandler guy. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on. Queen Latifah, who knew that they would have actually good romantic chemistry? Adam Sandler and Queen Latifah. I mean, there's not a moment in this movie that is not good and fun and great. It's like an Easter egg hunt for uh, NBA fans. I'm gonna watch this movie five more times before June is over. Wow, Uh, it's so good. (laughs) I I just want to have it on.
0: I was getting ready uh, to defend the movie against your attacks because I thought you were making some faces during uh, Joel's intro. So this uh, this has struck me a little bit (laughs) a little bit dumb because
1: my intro was bad. It must have been that then.
0: I mean, no, no, no. But
2: like, I I was laughing at the he'll be ready when like the, like the mother being like hearing $900,000 and be like, it's such a good sports movie moment. And I was just, I just laughing because
0: like, man, Sandler, he did it again. I loved it too. Um, I thought it was just, maybe it's by comparison to winning time, Vincent, which we talked about, which just felt so labored (laughs) and tortured and just kind of took a lot of potentially fun Material and just you could sort of see the flop sweat everywhere, yeah. and there was there were similar attempts at fan service, obviously, in winning time with sort of like winking moments, um, like oh, there's there's a uh, you know Pat Riley and he hasn't slicked back his his hair yet, and like all these things <laughs> that are supposed to appeal to NBA fans, and it just didn't didn't work, and um, I, I mean maybe. As the professional critic here, you can help us try to understand. And there's also just something about a movie where you don't necessarily have high expectations because you know the kind of like genre pitfalls here. And it just like surprises and and delights you um, that that happened here. But there was just something about it where it just felt like this just works. Like there's nothing in here. There are certainly genre cliches here, but it's like a good genre, the sport, like the kind of underdog like training sports movie thing like that shit works it's been proven for a century um and so but but yeah like vincent and, and joel too like what is it about this movie that just makes it it feels like so so effortless and and fun the only
1: thing that i could think of is that you realize there's not very many professional actors that take center stage in this movie like a lot of it is basketball players around them right um, I mean, I Adam Sandler is the guy that's the vehicle, but, it, and I felt like seeing famous people, especially athletes, it's fun. Um, yeah. and like whenever I would just see somebody pop up, you know, oh, there's Dr. J. Oh, Kenny Smith, uh, you know, uh, M- uh Matthijs Tybel, he's in there. Um, just whatever, just what you'd see in And Colorado. also guys
0: like the professor and lethal shooter and stuff that, like, if you yeah. follow basketball on the internet, you'll just like see right. lots of people yep. that are fun to recognize.
1: Yo, Josh, it, 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 I lost my shit. I saw Beanie Siegel in Freeway. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just like, oh yep. shit, they're in here it too. Was, you know what I'm Yeah. Saying? Like, Philly <laughs> Jets. Like, 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 just like this childhood wonder of seeing all these famous people. And it's, it, I guess it took me back to sort of like 1994 whenever, you know, with this sort of stuff. It happened less often. Like, I, I <laughs> this is going to be a, a ridiculous comparison, but, uh, New Edition did a video in the early 90s <laughs> called Any Heartbreak. And it had like, Heavy D and Malcolm Jamal Warner, like at the height of like the Theo Huxtable thing. And I was just like, <laughs> all these people know each other? They hang out? Like, and I just was like, so, I was so titillated. And I think yeah. that's what the movie was. It was just a, just a constant, um, just a constant stream of people that I was delighted to see on screen. It barely mattered what they did, but they all put in what I thought were, fairly good efforts as actors like i didn't feel like i was missing anything did
0: you guys feel vincent did you feel that there was like a little bit of kind of thirstiness like i in the closing credits where they're like shaquille o'neal as himself and dude is in the movie for like three seconds just like they were really (laughs) wanting to emphasize and you've seen this in the press around the movie too that like we got real nba guys and they did and as and as you said joel um i'm not complaining but like the credits like struck me as a, li- a little <laughs> bit ridiculous in kind of how much they were like congratulating themselves for um how Forgetting and, everybody. And they, I mean they got official approval of the Sixers I mean this is like a, a a movie that that I think the NBA is probably happy to have as a marketing vehicle too
2: yeah it's a, definitely a movie for diehards you know by diehards and like the whole I mean the Shaq thing especially it's like if you're doing a movie that has a lot of nba personalities in it and you get, you know, footage from the set of inside the nba it's like you know it's like a, an elvis moment it, it, you you can't do anything with that but brag about it and i think sandler had sandler's whole career is kind of living on this level of his own gratification you know i think that those credits were as much for him as they were for us and to see somebody having that much fun um and I, I would imagine that set had to be fun and that he was kind of making the guys laugh and probably like with his basketball knowledge and stuff, I think you can maybe see some of that with some of the like kind of joy and fun
0: in the performances. I mean, this is, this is a guy who to his detriment has surrounded himself with friends and a lot of his projects. I mean, like it's probably more fun for us to see Anthony Edwards than Rob Schneider in an Adam Sandler movie at this point. (laughs) I mean, I mean, no (laughs) offense to Rob Schneider, but like there's a way in which, you know, Sandler kind of having fun with his friends has like not necessary. I mean, I'm sure there are some people that, that love that, but like there, there's a, a way in which it's felt kind of redundant right. as his career went on, but like this. Right, but he knows
2: how to do it, right? And so if he puts people that we know in, and like we feel like we're friends with them, we get all the benefits of that with with fewer of the setbacks, right? And it's also like, and that same familiarity with the people it shines through in like the familiarity with the genre. Right. So everybody knows that especially basketball movies, there's always going to be a weird thing, a implicit, but very foregrounded thing about race. Like, you know, you think about Hoosier, you think about it's always like the, the underdog is like often white. And these like you, these like, you know, black uh, flashy guys are beating their asses <laughs> until they like get it together. Um, And how intimately you have to like understand what's going on globally in, in basketball to like turn that on its head just a little bit to have the guy be a European and his problem such as he has one on the floor is, is that it's like you one synopsis for this is european guy can't deal with black trash talk mm-hmm. like anthony edwards on the path to immortality he's done all that he's done great playoff showing and now he's like the great villain in a great basketball movie i mean he's just checking all my boxes
0: and he's that was just perfect shit. that was just perfectly pitched because he's a villain but like you love him
2: like but you there's love nothing him. there's he's
0: nothing that, there's nothing to hate about his <laughs> villainy just so you said spain that shit sounds whack that's like my favorite line
1: <laughs> it's so, like, charismatic. Charismatic. It's so charismatic <laughs>
0: so so
2: yeah i mean you could like i mean it's that performance you cannot say any, like you can tell he's like improving at certain points he's like you really can't guard me like that's just such a like that's how he talks you know it's a <laughs> And it's like all about this guy from Europe learning how to deal with this. <laughs> That's the movie. Um, it, it, I, I don't know. So it's like these genre expectations. He's also so familiar, with. and then you just see it like transplanted and like.
0: So how do they? How do they subvert that then? Why is? Why isn't it the bad version of of what you said? Because he's a poor guy from Spain,
2: and because. But they also show you that this is a thing that happens has happened for a couple of years in the NBA. Interestingly, the, the way that Sandler, uh, convinces him to come with him from Spain to the United States is he calls Dirk Nowitzki another Euro guy. Like, so there's, you know, it, it, it it's not going to say I, I'm not going to engage in that stereotype. It's just that I'm like going to change it. Like that now it's a, a global thing. Now it's a, I'm bringing you overseas thing. So it engages with the stereotype, tweaks it just a little bit. And we all, and we know that there's been the thing of like, soft euro guy so like okay we're dealing with a different kind of stereotype we're dealing with a different kind of um archetypical player Juancho, as i say is great and he like has a sort of like you know andrea barniani actually comes up very like momentarily in the which is like these like execs are talking about picks gone wrong and he's like he does have a sort of like barniani game like he's kind of a big guy and he's great on he's you know at least projects to be good on defense but he has a kind of finesse offense game so it's like it's engaging with all these really interesting things that like basketball fans talk about and observe yeah
1: yeah it's a real smart way of doing it and the the, uh the director of the movie jeremiah uh cigar like openly says that, we're, you know, this is sort of a love note to Philly, and we're, um, I think he he literally said, obviously, we're referencing Rocky a lot. Well, the one thing that I remember about Rocky, um, and it didn't I didn't really think about it until I was much older, if you go back to Rocky 3, which is, wow, I'm really dating myself here, right? But you remember Clever Lang, right? Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, the guy in, like, you know, he's just this loudmouth, you know, heavyweight challenger trying to take Rocky's title. And it was just like the loudmouth black guy and you want to see the loudmouth black guy humbled and it was just really sort of ham-handed in retrospect and it was kind of embarrassing when you think about it and like for whatever reason adam sandler and them and i don't know if it it, maybe this is all on the strength of anthony edwards right like maybe anthony edwards is just that charismatic that it didn't come off that way and it didn't strike me in quite that way but like, they pitched the, you know, like, the, the, the dynamic you say, you know, the trash talking black guy against the white guy. And he's got to learn to overcome it. Well, it never went into anything that I thought was that, that bordered on offensive or anything, right? Like I never, no, it, like no. that dynamic never, never showed up. It was just like, oh, like this is actually sort of true to life. And in fact, I enjoyed Anthony Edwards talking shit. And it really touched, t- to me, in some ways, it touched on something that made me, um, even more interested in the NBA in that, You know how they mic up the players during games and, you know, you never get anything interesting of note. And then, you know, sometimes you'll get players talking about trash talking stories like later. And I'm just like, man, is this about as close as we're going to get to know what trash talk on the NBA floor is like? Yeah. Through that vessel. But like, that's like, that's the shit. Like, that's the missing piece of basketball to me. Like hearing that up close. And Anthony Edwards was, like, like, the perfect vessel for that. So, yeah, I mean, like, he was so much better in the role of Clever Lang, um, is the way I'll put <laughs> it, than Mr. T was. Um, it was. It was Yeah, he was a delightful villain.
0: Yeah, and, and Creed obviously did a great job of flipping the script on the Rocky movies. I, I didn't see the second one, but the first Creed was um, really excellent. And so, a, again there is just a lot of um, stuff that works in movies like this and it never ceases (laughs) to work and can be recombined and remixed, as you said, Vincent, in a lot of um, smart and interesting ways, if you are familiar with genre. And just such a great point, Joel, about what we miss and what we want to see and hear as NBA fans, because the, the big problem historically with sports movies is that you'll get like a, a scene like the basketball and like Fresh Prince or Saved by the Bell or something where it's just like, <laughs> I mean, that that's obvious. <laughs> that's obviously the uh, the the nadir, but like, you know, going back to like Pride of the Yankees when Gary Cooper couldn't play baseball and just like you can't, it, it's just very hard to suspend disbelief and watch a movie like that. But the thing that you hit on, which I think is just as important, is like we need guys who we believe are players, like in that open gem run at the end with Trey Young and Aaron Gordon and all those and all those dudes. But we also need guys who we believe are speaking and walking and thinking like these mm-hmm. players. Mm-hmm. And that's what um kind of takes this to the next level because you can I mean, that's another big pitfall: is athletes who can't act. I mean, we've we've seen that for generation upon generation. Yeah. And I actually watched the Juancho Hernan Gomez um, audition tape. Not that impressive, but um, he was great in the movie. And so
1: mm-hmm. he's you know athletes you know who else can, was really good. Yeah, who who else was really good? Kenny Smith. Kenny Smith was a really good actor. Didn't you think Kenny Smith was really was. good? Because he I, he did what he did. I totally needed to do. him in that role. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It made sense. You know, I was thinking like, why is everybody, I have not seen this audition tape. Now I gotta go look. Yeah. Why is everybody better? And, and this also connects to the NIL deal stuff for me, the name and image likeness, uh, for college students. I feel like the, the, the median NBA player has done more like commercials, uh, like small acting gigs than they ever did before. Back in the day, it was like only like, okay, Larry Bird can be in a Converse commercial. And then like, that's kind of, it like all these guys and i, I would imagine this is only going to happen because there's some college kid now who's doing like a whatever car dealership ad for his nil money or whatever and like just i don't know it seems like a, a lot of people just had reps being kind of natural in front of the camera like even tobias harris who doesn't say a lot of stuff he just kind of there like nodding his head chris middleton's being like tapping <laughs> adam sandler on the back being like dude this guy your, your guy can fly man he's pretty you know like just People seeming fairly natural. And I'm
0: like, oh, it, these guys have been in front of a... Social media must have something to do with it. I mean, the thing sure. that pops yeah. into my head, I mean, the most charismatic basketball player and maybe person on the planet when we were growing up was Magic Johnson, who's also maybe oh, yes. the worst actor. Or, the <laughs> and, and like, his, you know, if you've seen his, his talk right. show, it's it, it doesn't always, there's not always a direct sort of translation. But I guess the the other thing that just popped in my head is Blue Chips, which I loved Mm. as a kid just Mm -hmm. because it was fun for me to see, like, Shaq and Penny in a movie. And that was... The whole pitch there was, like, they had real basketball players and and all the games. I don't...
1: Calbert Cheney was in a movie, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, Matt Nover, obviously, legend Legend. Matt Nover. Um, so there, ha- there is always something about, and that's always been a kind of pitch for these movies, that it's more, that they're more real, that the, we have real, go- like, the, this isn't the first movie to pull that off. But I guess with Blue Chips, since it was trying to actually be a cautionary tale and have a serious message, it was like, all right. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> There was there was a fun element to it, but I think maybe because it was like trying to be a good, trying too hard to like be be serious that that maybe is going to make it not stand the test of time as much as this movie. I don't know, but do it? Do we think you're going to watch it? You're going to watch it five times uh, by the end of June. But this seems like something that'll be be rewatchable.
1: I got it up there with he got game and white man can't jump, man. It's like right there in that, that next level of basketball movie right after hoops, uh, hoop dreams. It's right there. It's, mm-hmm. it's in the pantheon already for me. So yeah.
0: Yeah. It's so watchable. It's so good. <laughs> I can't get over it. Everybody watch hustle. So you can, uh, talk with, with Vincent about it. Vincent, so much fun to have you back. And, uh, so much next fun. Next time there's a good basketball movie, we'll have you on again. Could be in 10 years, but. No, hopefully hopefully and next maybe week. hustle
2: to hustle to more hustle <laughs> <laughs> i'm ready for that one
1: in the next segment we've got espn's kevin van valkenberg who was in england this weekend covering the first stop on the live golf tour
0: In this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about a couple of NFL stories from the past week, new allegations against the quarterback Deshaun Watson, published in the New York Times, and the coach Jack Del Rio's comments that the Capitol riot was just a dust-up. We will discuss both. And to hear that discussion, you need to be a Slate Plus member. Um, If you are a member, you don't just get bonus segments on this and other Slate shows. You also get no ads any Slate Podcasts, and you get the warm and fuzzy feeling of knowing you're supporting the work that we do. To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. Again, that's slate.com slash hangupplus. The first event of the inaugural Live Golf Invitational series took place in England over the weekend with South Africa's Charles Schwartzel, a former Masters champion, winning the title and getting a check for $4.75 million. That is the biggest chunk of change in the history of tournament golf. And there's going to be a lot more where that came from. Live golf is being financed by the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia. And as Kevin Van Valkenburgh reported for ESPN over the weekend, the Saudis are willing to spend $2 billion on this golf thing over the next four years. Uh, that's inspired a bunch of big name players to leave the PGA Tour. Among them, Dustin Johnson, Bryson DeChambeau, and Phil Mickelson. Joining us now is Kevin Van valkenberg He was at Live Golf's debut over the weekend. Thanks so much for being here.
3: Thanks for having me, guys. It's a little jet lag still, but uh, you know, running on adrenaline, golf adrenaline.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that's my first my first question, which is a pretty basic one. uh, What was it like to be there? What was the the vibe? And congratulations on being there for history.
3: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I would say it was a little surreal throughout uh, the week. Uh, A lot of um, strange moments. Ari Fleischer making a surprise appearance at the beginning of the uh, press conference thing. Um, There was a a drink-serving robot making its way around the the media center. Uh, There were full you know, guards in English regalia blowing trumpets on the first tee. The players were packing themselves into London black cabs, uh, sitting knee to knee with their caddies in a sort of strange, surreal, uh, moment, uh, dystopian in some ways. Uh, all of it just felt like, you know, a little bit of comedy until all of a sudden it was like, Whoa, like this might actually work. This isn't just sort of, uh, funny for a lot of uh, reasons. And I think that the world of golf is probably not going to be the same uh, ever again
1: wow i mean you think that what happened in england this weekend was that impactful you really believe that like the pga tour is threatened in some way by this i
3: think they are facing a major existential threat to their business model think about uh if you took the 50 best players out of the nba And put them in a league in poland or in russia or in japan or whatever it would put a serious dent in people's interest in watching the the nba that's what's threatening to be happening right now with the pga tour and the number one driver in the pga tours business model is their television rights and if people don't watch the tournaments on television then they have to start Giving back money, or sort of saying that you know advertisers get some of their money back, and so it's all very uh, nerve-wracking time. I think if I were the PGA Tour, any options in terms of trying to figure this out would be on the table. There are a lot of reasons why the you can't compete with uh, an entity that isn't trying to basically have any attempt at making a profit, or they don't care at all whether they lose two billion dollars. Like none of this is ever intended in any way to start a viable golf league. This is a you know, PR arm of the Saudi Arabian government who wants to change their world image. And so how does the PGA Tour figure out how to compete with that? I don't know. I mean, I I think you better start bringing in some of the smartest business minds in the world and asking them how to figure this out because right now you're in
1: trouble. I don't don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like you kind of made a 180 on this then, right? Because you you describe... The tour coming in, you know, you said several players' names were misspelled in news releases. The tickets sold poorly. Um, any fan who entered discount codes uh, got in for free. The website didn't have a working leaderboard. So you saw things over the course of the weekend that sort of turned, changed your mind about how things were going out there then, right?
3: I think what changed—I mean, I don't know if it changed my mind, is accurate. I think that we're trying to sort of—I think both things can be true, right? Like, initially— it seemed very much like a startup and it seemed very much like it might be kind of a joke they they had sort of threatened to roll out their uh players who are list of players who were going to be doing this probably 15 different times throughout the year and they kept making all kinds of pr bungles uh every time greg norman would do an interview and sort of open his mouth he would you know say something awful like oh you know that Khashoggi situation was bad, but you know, we all make mistakes. Or, you know, I've seen, I've been to Saudi Arabia and I saw women eating in restaurants. So I don't think uh, you really grasp, you know, how uh, much progress is being made there. And all of that, in a lot of ways, kind of screwed up a lot of the rollout. But once it arrives, what you kind of realized is that, you know, cash rules everything around me. Like these guys were there and they were getting paid a ton of money. It didn't really matter how many fans were interested or it didn't really matter, uh, whether the, they had a working scoreboard. All that mattered is that these guys weren't going to be on the PGA tour anymore. And so, man, it's like sometimes like, so when you see these things in business where, uh, a startup comes along and they have so much money and then they buy out, you know, the something else just to sort of drive that product out of business. Like that's more what it feels like. than it feels like an actual competitive thing that, uh, that, you know, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia wants, like they just want to have the viable golf tour that sort of says, okay, I Phil Mickelson's our guy and we can use him to, for whatever reasons we want to play, whether it's to play with the head of the investment fund and show everybody that uh, this, uh, you know, successful American golfer or businessman is, is on board with us. Or what if, you know, they want to play with the prime minister of Japan, like how much would he maybe want to play with Phil Mickelson? There's a great sort of, you know, entryway into the, that kind of relationships. And all of that is sort of on the table in terms of the league's viability. And so I think like, it can seem a little bit like a comical joke in some ways about the way that it's um, run, but it, they're getting better already. And they're sort of showing like, Hey, you know, we're going to be a force in the world of golf. That's that the PGA tour has got to be worried.
0: I hadn't thought about this before, but based on what you're just saying, it like reminds me a little bit of the housing crisis mm. and the underlying um naivete there of house prices always go up and this has never failed before so it will uh, it won't fail now and you know joel We've had so many conversations on this show where you have rightly talked about startup football oh. leagues, whether it's the new XFL or the new USFL. And you're just like, this shit <laughs> is never going to work mm-hmm. because the NFL is so entrenched. And every time we're talking about it, you're like, why are we doing this? Like people might tune in for one week and then nobody's ever going to see this again, which is correct. And then, you know, Kevin, we had the super league mm-hmm. in soccer, which seemed like it was really going to happen. And. There was, I I think at some level, at least like a, an amount of shame that happened that like pulled it back a little bit. Although maybe there's some like kind of untold story there that we'll, that we'll find out later, but like all of that is kind of underlying my, what I now believe is a naive view that like when the Mickelson quotes came out about the Saudis being scary motherfuckers and the whole thing kind of fell apart and you had Dustin Johnson and Bryce, all these people say, we're not going to do this. I've thought, all right, just like the Super League. um, I wasn't thinking of it to be honest about the USFL then, but like, just like any of these leagues with, lot, with some money behind them that come in and say, they're going to take down the big, bad, whatever, that like, this was just another example of it, of it not working and so why 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 was i wrong like why didn't this go the way of the super league is it just that the saudis have much have more money than everybody else and is it just as simple as that yeah i
3: think just you and you're not alone here so don't feel bad about this but you probably thought about it in terms of a traditional sports league competition where the sort of there's a fairness to it right like you have to balance your books you have to eventually show a profit you can't just like burn money forever well You know, $500 million, which is probably what they allegedly what they spent this year. I think that might even be a conservative estimate to sort of get this thing up and running. The the party alone that they threw at the beginning thing cost $4 million. So that gives you a, a window into just how quickly they're willing to kind of spend money. But let's say let's say just for this year, they spent $500 million on everything. Okay, well, the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia has $600 billion in it. And that is only money that is earmarked for this purpose of basically improving the I guess long-term economic viability of the kingdom and sort of transitioning away from oil dependency this is their kind of uh, you know what they they put this on literally as part of their vision 2030 uh proposal of the that this is they're no longer want to be seen as kind of like a just an oil country that's sort of living in the dark ages they want to be the next Dubai or they want to have cities that are kind of thought of as tourist destinations. So what is five hundred million dollars really? It's a rounding error, and you know the PGA Tour's total revenue is something like one point four billion dollars, and their profit margin, because they are a nonprofit, is minuscule because they have to keep pouring it back legally into their product. And so what we're seeing is basically like a superpower that's like, yeah, like well, we can just basically, you know, it's almost like a Cold War situation. We can spend Russia into uh you know, bankruptcy and we don't have to worry because we'll just keep printing money and we'll keep, you know, making missiles and do whatever, like that's what the equivalent of it is in a lot of ways is the, the side is basically saying, you know, they, they say on up front uh, with through Greg Norman, like, yeah, we, we want to be an additive tour. We don't, we don't want to destroy the PGA tour, Uh but really like, how does it not destroy it? If you're taking the 50 best players and basically saying, yeah, they're going to come play for us whenever we want. And, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, let you guys figure it out from there.
1: Well, Kevin, it's interesting you say that because the PGA Tour has already suspended 17 golfers, you know, Mickelson, uh, Dustin Johnson, Sergio Garcia, and others uh, for participating in this Live Tour. And yesterday, the PGA Tour commissioner, Jay Monaghan, said, why do they need us so badly because those players have chosen to sign multi-year lucrative contracts to play in a series of exhibition matches against the same players over and over again. You look at that versus what we see here today, and that's why they need us so badly. You've got true, pure competition. The best players in the world are here at the RBC Canadian Open, with millions of fans watching. Um, so, Kevin, is there any truth to what Jay is saying there, or is that just wishful thinking?
3: No, There is truth to it. I mean, you are, you know, it, it's essentially kind of a, a closed circuit, right? If you're playing in the live, I mean, there'll be some players who will come in and out. Not all the players who have signed are guaranteed to be in every tournament because they want to sort of keep the, you know, availability to add like a Justin Thomas or Roy McIlroy, if they ever were to change their mind, or God forbid, a Tiger Woods. Uh, they would do that in a second if. I don't I don't know that there's a number high enough that um that Tiger could throw out that they wouldn't be willing to meet because they know that would be sort of game over. Uh so
0: based on your reporting is it true that they offered him high nine figures Do you?
3: I don't think there was ever like a real offer where they like put a contract in front of him. You know Tiger does not like Greg Norman uh and has never really made that a secret and so I don't think that uh they they weren't ever in a room together where Greg slid as a piece of paper across the room or presented to the lawyers now greg might have thrown out like well what if we offered him you know 750 million dollars like i you know who knows if if he said that to one of tiger's people uh, uh it's time lee steinberg is agent or rob mcnamara is like you know body guy like I, who knows i i just don't know that uh i know that it was never like a real offer
0: I have never seen the phrase offered high nine figures in an article before. So that was a, that was a first first for me. Yeah.
3: I mean, it just shows you like the bottomless pit of money that they're dealing with. Or, you know, I don't know if pit is the right word, maybe just, you know, giant pit a pot of gold is, uh, or, or oil or whatever. I mean, if look, if, if tiger went, it would mean basically that it was open season. And I don't think anybody would really feel like they Uh, had to stay if Tiger was willing to do this. And so that's why he's the sort of big prize. He's the one, you know, big gun left that the PGA tour has. So basically like his word carries a lot of weight and in the, you know, initial sort of crush of this where they sort of said they thought they were, everything was, we were going to go. And then Mickelson's comments came out and a lot of players really were bashing Mickelson and bashing the idea. Pat Perez came out and said, you know, Tiger's word is gold. We're going to stick with what Tiger does. Well, then yesterday, Pat Perez was one of the guys who came out and basically did a 180 and said, you know, this looks like a great deal for me. Like it's, you know, and allegedly like he's getting, you know, 30, 40 million dollars to do it. So money talks in a lot
0: of ways. Pat Perez, Pat Perez. I mean, like who, who cares about Pat Perez? No, no offense. uh, I, I do mean offense to you, Pat Perez. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about Pat Perez, but like, this is a guy and this was in your piece, Kevin, who. You described it as going on a lengthy, passionate monologue to the media about how no one would follow Phil or Bryson. He was asked, he said to a fan on Instagram, fuck no, would he consider taking the Saudi money? And then here we are. But like the one guy who's been the most outspoken, it seems like kind of anti live stalwart is Rory McElroy, who won the Canadian Open over the weekend, like said, it that it made it special because he now has more PGA tour wins than Greg Norman. I mean, like it, it seems like he is staking a lot of his, um, I don't know, reputation. Mm -hmm. And like, it it doesn't seem like he's in a position where he's going to go back on what he's saying. And so you've said repeatedly in this conversation, 50 guys, top 50 players, but we're not at, we're not at that level right now. And like, so is there like a group that's like with, worry that's like not gonna not gonna go and like why why do you feel why is this like 50 number keep coming up again and again
3: well yeah so the the fields that the live tour wants to have every week are 48 people so you know if you figure if you got the top 50 60 players to sign on and then you could just sort of cycle them in and out based on you know their availability or that what they wanted or who you really wanted to have then that would be the Top 50 players. There is a group of guys who sort of is younger and feels loyalty to Tiger and loyalty to the tour. And I, I think you can always go be end up being disappointed.
0: Who would that who would that be? Like Brooks, Kepka, Justin Thomas? I would like, I don't
3: know like I'd that put Brooks in there, but I would put Justin Thomas in there for sure. I'd put Scotty Scheffler in there for sure. Uh, you know, I would put Jordan Spieth in there for sure. That group of guys who Idolize Tiger Woods, who considers him sort of a competitive friend, a big brother, an uncle in a way. They all, I think, would feel like they were betraying their childhood selves if they went against kind of what Tiger said, you know, this is what I think you should do. They sort of see him as a Yoda type who they would feel they would want to disappoint him. And I think as long as he's in the PJ Tours corner, that would be hard for especially like Justin Thomas thinks of as an older brother. And so I think he would feel like he was letting so tiger...
0: disappointing tiger is a bigger consideration than like not taking the Saudis money Well, for Rory. I think that
3: the Saudi stuff isn't actually a real concern. I think that you can always kind of be disappointed if you ask yourself, if you hold an athlete up as some sort of paragon of morality uh, of someone who you can look up to, but Rory's a throwback, like Rory thinks about the world in a larger sense, you know, Rory's spoken out in favor of gun control and Rory believes in equal rights and Rory believes in, you know, things bigger than just making the biggest pile of money possible. And I think that's a, you know, he's he's an Arthur Ashe type or he's a Kareem Abdul-Jabarta. He, he said all throughout this year that he's the head of the players uh, council who's kind of helps make the PGA Tour make decisions. And he constantly has to sort of weigh what's beneficial to him, which would be like fewer tournaments, Versus like what's big beneficial to the larger, like leadership, the guys who are 125th on tour. And he wants to kind of make sure that they're taken care of in terms of getting them starts. And that's the ability to step outside yourself and realize that there are bigger issues than yours. Pretty rare in sports, but you'd still see some athletes choose to do it. And Rory is one of them. So I think, I hope that that extends forever. He had this sort of kind of famous quote of this earlier share said, you know, I have an amazing house and I only go in like four rooms of it.
0: I don't know what three, four hundred million dollars more is gonna do to change my life. Yeah, I mean that's been the biggest kind of mystery that's not actually a mystery in all of this. It's just like these guys are already so well compensated. And I'm like generally very pro athletes getting what the market will bear. No at like a certain point. Come on.
1: I mean No, you know, you know, that's, I mean, it's never enough, right? I mean, once you, once you get that far, right. Um, It's never enough.
3: And I think, I think you guys need to sort of think too about like golf is different than other sports in that if you don't play well, you don't make anything that week. You know, you show up at a tournament and you're essentially sort of putting your chips into the middle of the table of, I paid my whole way to get here. I paid my coach. I paid my nutritionist, all that stuff. And if I shoot two rounds and that are 75, I'm going home with nothing i'm going home with a deficit whereas like if you sign a contract in the nfl and you stink that guaranteed money is still always yours forever and so golf has always kind of like prided itself on that idea but also they've kind of come around in recent years to like hey man like if the tour rights are worth two billion dollars on television And how come we aren't getting more of that? Like, it seems unfair that we're not guaranteed money. And so this is a lot about guaranteed money. These guys want to have the security of saying like, all right, well, even if I play like shit for a couple of years, I know that I'll still be getting a $10 million check from Live Golf. And, you know, in a lot of ways, if it was, if this was like Switzerland setting up this thing, or this was, you know, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or whomever, I think that a lot of people who are kind of critical would be like, yeah, man, get your money. Like the PG tour is a stale product. It needs to change. And it's, you know, that's more complicated than that because it's not a viable sports league that's trying to compete with another sports league. It's a, you know, country that's trying to wash its reputation because of the things that they are, they've are they not only really done, but they're continuing to do.
0: Come on with that comparison to the NFL. I mean, golf is the only sport that you can play when you're, you know, Phil Mickelson's age. And these guys all have sponsorships with Buick and they all can make… Buttload of money playing exhibitions, and I think that there there are certainly aspects to this live thing that if you took out the the Saudi money, um, the the no cuts, the um, you know the all the guaranteed money every week that these guys have been asking for for a long time, that would give them some more certainty. But it's just like. The the notion that like, get what Gary Player said with just like, these guys need the money is just so laughable that it's, it's hard for any, nobody, nobody is giving them any sympathy in comparison to like any other athletes in any other sport. It's absurd.
3: I agree, but I'm telling you that that is their mentality of like, Hey, we provide an entertainment product and we should deserve to be paid, uh, you know, for it. And in some ways, like the comparison is you know, full of holes in many ways, but like the PJ tour could have handled this differently in the buildup in the last few years of it, the same way that the NCAA could have handled the NIL stuff differently. Like it wasn't until the barbarians were at their gate that they really panicked and was like, Oh my God, we got to do something. They were kind of arrogant and thought like, ah, whatever, this is never going to change. There's nowhere else for them to go. And they didn't see the bigger global picture of like, you know what, someone's willing to use these golfers to burnish their reputation like they don't have to make a profit they don't have to put on a credible tournament they'll just make these guys kind of show up and go through the motions and they'll get paid and that's that
0: kevin van valkenberg writes about golf and other stuff for espn we'll put links to his dispatches from the live golf invitational series debut event on our show page kevin thank you so much good thanks guys
3: set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened. In
2: 1969, 14 black student-athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field.
1: Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story.
0: We became brothers that day when you did that to us.
1: We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve.
2: Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you
1: get your BBC podcasts.
0: And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. Um, so we talked about <laughs> all the people we were delighted to see in Hustle, and we didn't mention Kyle Lowry, Joel. Mm. Um, we didn't. Mm. We didn't mention Mo, Mo uh, Wagner, who did not play himself. Yeah. He played a German dude named Haas.
1: Haas. I loved that guy. Yes. Haas. That was fun. And that was,
0: not to get back into it, but um, sort of like what what Vincent was saying earlier with um, kind of complicating genre conventions a little bit by focusing on a European dude, the thing that was kind of clever about that is that they also included a European dude who was like soft in a traditionally European dude sort of way and that Adam Sandler wasn't really all about. And so they didn't... um, make it kind of like too simplistic that like, oh, all these like players from overseas are getting kind of undervalued by the NBA. There was some like kind of nuance there. And maybe we we need to give Mo Wagner some credit for his portrayal of a lethargic uh, German named Haas.
1: Yeah, you know, and I, I have to say, you know, going back to my ESPN days, I wrote a profile of Mo Wagner when he, when Michigan made the Final Four. I guess it was 2018 when they played at the regional out in Los Angeles, and he, he was pretty good. I gotta, gotta say, I thought, I thought, I didn't think he would uh, stick around in the NBA as long as he. You profiled Mo and not Franz. Yeah, Mo, not not Franz. It was Mo. That would keep, cause, cause he played for, uh, with, uh, Bayline. That, that was, that was his coach. I don't think Bay, Bayline got, uh, got his younger brother. I think Bay, his younger brother played for Juwan, right? So.
0: I think that's right. Um, but, you know, if the whole NBA thing doesn't work out for these, uh, Wagner brothers, uh, I think, uh, maybe they can keep going with, uh, with the acting.
1: Joel, what is your Mo Wagner? So. The little bit that Pine Bluff, Arkansas is known for outside of the state is mostly bad. The city was the site of one of the nation's largest mass lynchings in 1866, the start of a Reconstruction-era terror that drove black people out of political life. It's annually listed among the nation's most dangerous cities, according to FBI crime data. And through most of my childhood, when I visited my mother's family at least once a year— Pine Bluff regularly took its place among cities in rotation for Worst in America on a yearly list compiled by Rand McNally. Things have only gotten worse since I was a little boy, and Rand McNally isn't the only one who's noticed. In the past decade, Pine Bluff has earned the title of the most dangerous little town in America, the worst place to live in America, and just last year, the most miserable city in America. Um... Because of that awful reputation, Pine Bluff and the people from there have to hold on tight to the few positive things that come out of there. The sun shines everywhere, you know? So, like, hey, Pine Bluff used to host one of the best high school basketball tournaments in the country, the old King Cotton Classic, where I once saw Corliss Williamson with my uncle and cousin in 1990. The town opened the state's first standalone purpose-built casino in 2019, and that's sort of positive. And of course, there's the town jewel, the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff, an HBCU that was called Arkansas AM&N when my father graduated from there in 1971. And here's a very short list of luminaries from the bluff. So for Slow Burn fans out there, Martha Mitchell, subject of the first episode of the first season on Watergate, Mike Huckabee, Pro Football Hall of Famers Don Hudson, and you'll recognize this name, Josh, Willie Rofe. Uh... Black Panther Party co-founder Bobby Hutton, NBA great Fat Lever, Grammy-winning gospel singer Smokey Norful, and five-time MLB all-star Tori Hunter, whose money and name went to a very handsome baseball stadium on UAPB's campus. I'd known about most of these people, and that's because my mother spent much of the 1960s in Pine Bluff, raised in a small clapboard home with 11 other siblings next door to a county dumping ground. My mom would tell me about some of these people who grew up in her hometown and somehow made it out. Hell, she even knew a few of them. But somehow, we missed one of the city's most notable products, someone who for years has escaped the notice of both my mother and Wikipedia, Ricky Henderson, the Hall of Fame baseball player and all-time leader in runs and steals. This fact came up on Bomani Jones' The Right Time podcast last week when he interviewed Howard Bryant about his latest biography, which is titled, Ricky. Here's a clip.
3: That's right. And Ricky was talking about when he first got there, he was stunned how
1: refined California was. He's a country dude from Pine Bluff. Oh, okay. Explains even more. Hey, Bomani, I heard that. But Henderson's own story fashions himself as a boy of West Oakland, where he moved with his mother and four other brothers when he was seven years old. But he spent ages two through seven in Pine Bluff, living on his grandmother's farm. And like so many others, his mother decided to pick up and go west for better opportunities. She landed in Oakland, where Ricky blossomed into one of the city's most legendary athletes. He was an All-American running back who earned a dozen scholarship offers to play in college, but instead chose to pursue baseball. That obviously turned out to be the right decision. And hey, maybe it was for the best that Ricky left the bluff when he did. And he and his family certainly weren't alone. From 1970 to 2020... Pine Bluff has lost a quarter of its population and continues to hemorrhage people. Just last year, Pine Bluff was identified as the fastest shrinking city in America. My mother herself was part of that massive migration, leaving for Houston in 1971 with my father. It was a decision she called going as far north as we could get south. But I often think about the toll of that loss of potential— I went back to Pine Bluff in February for my grandmother's funeral. It was sad, but she made it to 95. We're grateful. And drove around the sad little town with my mom. It was such a desolate place, the kind that's probably familiar to anyone who travels the interior of this country a bit. Abandoned homes, empty lots, and a few stoplights and fast food restaurants that are among the few signs of hustle and bustle. It probably won't do much for Pine Bluff if it was known that Ricky Henderson is from there. The trajectory is probably pretty much unavoidable at this point. But you know what? I felt a real surge of pride when Howard Bryant dropped that little nugget about Ricky the other day. Pound Bluff isn't just a national punchline, a place people only think about when they think about how bad it can actually get. It's nurtured a lot of people who've gone on and gone on to great things, my mother and father among them. Ricky Henderson didn't just sprout out of the Oakland soul. He's an Arkansas kid, just like them.
0: That's great. I've got two thoughts, one glib and one less glib. My glib thought is like, maybe these groups that give out the most miserable city award, maybe they should all kind of get together. And like, once a city gets it, it can be retired. They can like move on <laughs> to, to other places. It just feels a little bit like, uh, piling on at a certain point. Like we get the, we get the point, Rand McNally.
1: I read a story from 1986 when Pine Bluff first turned up on there, but they were. The second worst city in America, and the city had threatened to sue Rand McNally for that. And obviously, nothing came with that lawsuit because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> as you can see.
0: And, and number two, which is, uh, perhaps an obvious point, but just one of the great tragedies of racism, segregation, white supremacy is just the loss of, uh, I mean, talent isn't necessarily the right word, but it's the loss of of people in these communities, people of great uh, ability, intellect, drive. And Mm -hmm. if you have those things, just the the feeling that there are certain places in the country or in the world that you can't be if you want to make something of yourself. And then the fact that those places... Are then named the most miserable or the most terrible. It's because of, um, the, the factors that, that drove people to leave. Um, and so it didn't have to be that way, which is, uh, a very sad thing.
1: Yeah. No, it's really sad. Like, um, you know, I always think about like, man, what would have happened if my parents had stayed? And, uh, you know, I, I had to have been raised in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think, uh, the Andersons and the Bells would have, uh, changed much, uh, cause that, it, like I said, it's kind of, that, that die is cast, but, um. It's a much more difficult place to come out of than Missouri City, Texas. Put it that way, um, and so in that way, I'm grateful for my parents for leaving. But it's also just kind of sad, um, and I don't have very many reasons to go back to Pine Bluff anymore. My, most of my family that was there either moved away or is dead. So, but you know, I do care about that place, and uh, it was just kind, like I said, it's just kind of cool. And Josh, it was actually your idea for me to, to to talk about that. You saw me tweeting as you often do. And, uh, well, yeah, I mean, every,
0: me and about. every time I hear about Pine Bluff, I obviously think of you and your your family. So, um, yeah. I always like, I mean, even though it's not like a necessarily happy stories, I always like to hear about, about the, you know, your connection to it. Yeah,
1: thanks, man. Hey, man, I, you know, I once saw a dog get attacked on the street there. It was the first time I ever saw a dog get attacked by another dog on the street in Palm Bluff, Arkansas. So they had that going for it, too.
0: Um, all right. Well, I hope they put a plaque up. Um, that, is our, <laughs> <laughs> that is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.
3: With lucky
4: landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered
2: here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?